I used to run track and field, and uh, when you run track and field, maybe the 400, the 800, you come into that home stretch, and you look, and you see the finish line, and you have to remember, because those are really harsh races, they're hard on you, to finish well, and uh, I think the way that we have studied Job over the past few weeks, um, it's like a 400, and uh, you know, so keep your knees up, pump your arms, right? Finish well. We have this week, and then we have next week. And uh, I hope you have been blessed. Uh, in this way, it's not like a 400. I never felt blessed after the 400, just so you know. But I hope you have, have felt blessed, been blessed by God, as we have been able to study through the gospel of Job. That's what it is. There is good news here in this book. We don't think about it that way often, but but there is. There's an Alfred Hitchcock movie called The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, James Stewart, a good Pennsylvanian, I understand. Jimmy Stewart, Doris Day are both in the movie. And in the movie, Doris Day sings one of the top 50, I, if I understand correctly, the top 50 songs written for a movie of all time. Que sera, sera. And do any of you know Que Sera Sera? Okay, you've heard maybe this song. Uh, its lyrics begin this way. I'm not going to sing it for you, although some of you probably would like it if I did, just so you could make fun of me. I'm not going to give you that pleasure. All right? Here's, here's how the song begins. Day sings, When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, What will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. And if you know the song, as some of you do, then you know that it's light and upbeat and catchy. It's a catchy tune. It's a light-sounding song. However, when you really consider the lyrics, they're anything but light and upbeat. In fact, the lyrics, when we consider them, are fatalistic. They are fatalistic lyrics. They essentially tell us that whatever happens, happens. There's no controlling the future. So if things go badly, you just better get used to it. You just better settle in. In Job's situation, tough luck, Job. That's just, that's the future. That's how it goes as day sings. Whatever will be will be. Yet in today's text, in this book, Job, which is not known for being upbeat or light, it isn't, it is heavy, but in this book, in this text, the future is ours to see. That's what we're going to find out today. The future is ours to see. We get a glimpse of the future. We're going to see that the future isn't fatalistic, but in the hands of a personal creator, God, who loves us and cares for us. He's going to see justice done. He's going to see mercy extended. He's going to see redemption applied to the broken. Here in this text... And in eternity as well. We're going to see that whatever will be in a fallen and sinful world will not be 
in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth. This chapter preaches the gospel to those who have ears to hear it. And so let's look and see the gospel in this last chapter of Job. And let's pray that we will have ears to hear it. I'm going to read first and then we'll pray. Job chapter 42. Here's our text for today. Verse 7 through verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord as I read it. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Kirin Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons. And his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. I'll invite you now to bow your heads with me as we pray that the Lord would be our teacher this morning. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart upon this passage would be acceptable in your sight. And we pray that we would have ears to hear. Ears to hear the good news that is in this passage. We pray for your sanctifying hand upon us. We pray that we would be crafted through hearing this sermon and thinking about what you're communicating to us in it. That we'd be crafted more into the the likeness of Jesus Christ, that we would be a people who are transformed, changed, a good news people, and that that would energize us to follow you wherever you would call us, especially to follow you in the midst of darkness and difficulty, which is to be found in a sinful world. So use this time, Heavenly Father, uh, to 
to make us holy, to make us like you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we read these verses, we should see that a great reversal is taking place. It's actually the second great reversal in the book of Job because at the beginning we have a great reversal. Job goes from prosperity to to suffering and loss, to poverty. But here we see that the opposite reversal is taking place. He goes from suffering, poverty, to an extreme prosperity. And there's reversal in three different ways. Where there was injustice, now there's justice. Where there was discipline from the Lord, now there's mercy. And where there was devastation, now there is redemption. These things are in this passage. Justice, mercy, redemption. And in each case, what will be in a fallen and sinful world won't be in the next, in the perfect world that God is going to redeem. So let's look at, at this passage and see how this plays out in the book of Job. So first we're going to look at justice. There is justice here in this book. In the last couple of sermons and uh, in the preceding chapters, the chapters before this one, God is speaking to Job. And Job alone. Uh, But here, he turns from Job to Job's three miserable comforters. And God is angry with them. And we could pass over this line about God's anger burning against Job's three miserable comforters. We could think to ourselves, well, of course, his anger should burn against them. Right? They're the bad guys. But let's not domesticate God. Let's not pass over his holy anger lightly or too quickly. To be confronted with the presence of the Lord God leaves those whom he favors beside themselves. Uh, Even the prophet of God, Isaiah, when he comes into the Lord's presence, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, he sees the holiness of God. This is a man that the Lord is smiling upon, and yet when he enters the Lord's holy presence, he is undone and cries out, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He wants to disappear. He can't handle the holiness of the Lord. And for these three men, these three friends of Job's, there could be nothing more mortifying than having to stand before the anger of the Lord. Not the favor of the Lord, but the frowning disposition of God upon them. Simply imagine whatever it is that you fear the most. Think about the thing in your life that you worry about or fear the most. I don't know what that is. Only you know what that is. But whatever it is, know that it pales in comparison to having the frowning disposition of God look down upon you. Having the holy anger of God burn against you is far worse than whatever it is you could imagine. Don't try to tame God's anger. We need to feel the fear these three men undeniably felt when God turned his attention to them and when the Lord said this to Eliphaz, verse 7. 
My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. These three men are doubtlessly undone, as you and I would be undone if we stood in their shoes, in their place. We must feel their fear. We must feel God's holiness and grapple with God's holiness and recognize our sinfulness. And then we need to settle in and look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and realize, but for the grace of God that we have in Jesus Christ, our place would be the same as these three men, having the holy anger of God burn against us. And that should lead us to praise God for Jesus, to praise him for what he has done through the person of our Savior. That's got to be our first impression when we hear about the holy anger of God frowning down upon these three men. Now, so much ink has been spilled trying to explain why they've spoken wrongly about God and Job has spoken rightly about God. I mean, you could read the commentaries for yourselves. It is amazing how many suggestions there are out there for what exactly is different between the two. What precisely is the difference between what these three have said and what Job has said about God? Because when we read through the book of Job, if we're being honest, it's difficult for us to determine what's actually different between Job's speaking about God and these three miserable comforters speaking about God. And if that's true, if they basically say the same thing, we must ask, How's there justice here? Why is God angry at one group and then exonerating, vindicating Job? How is that justice? Well, friends, I don't think that they've said the same thing about the Lord at all. And I think the reason for that is that it's at a heart level that we have to to look. They have spoken very differently at a heart level. One pastor put it this way. Just listen to his words. It seems to me that God's affirmation of Job applies somehow not only to what Job has said, but to who Job is, his heart. The answer would seem to be this. In other words, the answer between how are they different? How are the three comforters and Job different in what they say about God? The answer would seem to be this. The friends have a theological scheme, a tidy system, well-swept, well-defined, and entirely satisfying to them. But they have no relationship with the God behind their formulas. There is no wonder, no awe, no longing, no yearning, and no prayer to meet and speak with and hear and see the God of their formulas. They are content with the rules of their system. They are content with heartless worship, heartless theology. And with this formulaic approach to God, they badly bruised and battered Job, their friend, in his darkest moment, haven't they? Without a heart, like God's heart, they have just leveled accusations at Job They have portrayed the Lord as some kind of divine robot to be moved by us 
As if we do this and God has to do that. Or if, Job, you repent of this, then God will surely do that for you. They put God in a very small box and crush their friend in the process. Heartless worship. And for this, there must be justice. And that's precisely what we find in the text. We find justice in this passage. These three men must go to the very one they have bruised and repent before God. They have to go to Job and they have to repent. They must ask Job to sacrifice and pray for them. They must seek his forgiveness in order to receive God's forgiveness. They have to humble themselves and ask Job to do what they cannot do in order for God to forgive them. Job is vindicated, isn't he? Justice is served here, isn't it? There is justice in this passage. But if you don't buy that, that answer for the heart level difference between what they say and what Job says about God, just consider how the Lord often confronts his people for the heartless worship they offer him. How in the Bible we see this. So you can go to the book of Isaiah and God says this in Isaiah 29, verse 13 and 14. Because this people honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish. He says, my people don't worship me with their heart. They may say true things to honor me, but it's no honor at all. It is fallacious. It is a lie. It is not true. Because their heart's not in it. Their hearts are far from me. And isn't that precisely what's happened here? Haven't these wise friends come speaking their commandments from the Lord in a detached and heartless fashion? And hasn't their wisdom therefore been put to death by the Lord? It's being put to death by the Lord in this very passage. He will not have it. His holy anger burns against it. And I think there's a a lesson here for us. I think there's a warning here for us. We have to pay attention. When we say things about the Lord, even true biblical things about the Lord, with a cold heart, with a heart that's far away from God, then we have not spoken rightly about our holy creator the creator of all things. We have spoken lies. Even when we say true biblical things about God, and yet our heart's far away from him. And God's holy anger burns against such speech. When we come on a Sunday morning, and we just go through the motions, and pretend as if we're really seeking God, but it's really just a Sunday morning, And we could really care less. That's a sin. God's anger burns against that kind of sin. When we develop rigid theological systems from our study of scripture and impose those structures on people without the care and compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we bruise and batter people with our formulas 
no matter how true they are. They could be 100% true. Our theological systems could be super biblical. Yet when we do that with a cold heart, a heart that couldn't be further from the heart of Jesus Christ, God's holy anger burns against us and our systems. God will not put up with that. He will not receive that as worship. Friends, good theology is never impersonal. Hear me say that. Good theology is never impersonal. It's never heartless. It's always intimately connected to the infinitely compassionate heart of the God it's about. Amen. You should be thankful for that. God has a heart for you, a love for you. He loves people created in his image and he expects us to love them as well. And the truth of the Bible with the gospel message always with a heart that is desiring to worship him and serve him and is connected to him. He wants us to have hearts after his heart. Well, Job finally receives justice here, doesn't he? He's exonerated. He's vindicated. And yet, even as the Lord gives Job justice, he gives the three miserable comforters mercy. Did you see that in the passage? His justice is combined with his mercy. There's mercy here. Look at how God combines the provision of his justice with the application of his mercy. The Lord tells Eliphaz and his two friends what they got to do. This is what he says, verse 8 and 9. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. In other words, the Lord forgave them. He gave them mercy. There is mercy in this passage, and it is wrapped up with the justice of God. The very person who was so bruised by these three miserable comforters is in the end the very one through whom the Lord will work to grant their forgiveness. Job is vindicated and approved by God before these three men, and they get mercy through his sacrifices and his prayers on their behalf. The justice of God is combined with the mercy of God. And friends, when you see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the justice of God and the mercy of God combined, then it is a foretaste of greater things to come. It's foreshadowing a greater justice and a greater mercy that work in unity to come. So some of you may have tuned out, right? Tune back in. If you don't get anything else I say today, if you only go away with one thing, then right now you need to listen. This is the thing to listen to. This is the thing to take away today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, And maybe you came saying, I want to know what's at the heart of Christianity. What's at the center of Christianity? Then pay attention now. Listen up now. 
Job's sacrifices and prayers for the very people who so mistreated him are a foreshadow of the essence of Christianity. This act combining God's justice and God's mercy point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Only at the cross of Jesus Christ is justice finally done. Humanity, all of us, are rebellious sinners. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, God pours out his anger against such rebellion and such sin. And justice is done at the cross of Jesus Christ. Sins, our sins, are punished in the person of Jesus. Justice is done. But it's also where the Lord's mercy is on full offer. You see, at that very moment that God is pouring out his justice on Jesus Christ through faith in God doing that, taking our sins and putting them on Jesus and punishing them in the person of Jesus, God offers us his mercy. Through that faith, he says, I want to lavish on you my mercy. I want to call you my sons and daughters. I want to forgive you. Mercy is extended. Sins are forgiven. And that's called in Christianity good news or gospel. The two words mean the same thing. Good news means gospel. Gospel means good news. If you hear us talking about the gospel, we're talking about the good news. That's the heart of Christianity. That's at the center of what we believe. Every single Christian must constantly be reminded of this message. This is how we are to live. As a people who have seen justice done and mercy extended in perfect unity at the cross of Jesus Christ. Greater things are to come than Job sacrificing and praying for his three friends. Far greater things are to come. And so friends, there are buckets full of mercy in this passage. And in the end, there is magnificent restoration too. There is redemption here also. Where Job had lost property, here we find he now receives back double 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. Verse 12. I mean, what do you do with all those animals? I have no clue. But he's got double. Where Job hadn't received honor and comfort from his closest family and Friends, here he receives it in abundance. Both brothers and sisters showed him sympathy and comforted him and each honored him with money and rings of gold. That's verse 11 of today's passage. Double comfort, double honor. And where Job's health was once lost and his life was meaningless and worthless, at least he thought it was, we now find him restored and full of purpose and full of life. Verse 16 and verse 17 of today's passage. A life that's almost unimaginable in length. But, but, there's still a problem. If you're like me, there's still the difficult question of Job's children. Sure, he now has seven sons and three famously beautiful daughters again. Yet they can never simply replace his lost children. So what gives? What are we to make of 
Job's children. I don't have a definite answer for you. I don't think anyone does. I read through multiple commentaries. A lot of questions surround the children of Job here. But I do have a possible answer. It's an answer that I think is incredibly encouraging. So I'm going to offer it up to you. Again, I'm not saying this has to be the answer or is the answer, but it's a possible answer and one that gives hope. Let me begin with a question because all good answers have to begin with a question. Why aren't the number of Job's children doubled with everything else? I mean, did you notice that in the passage? Seven sons, three famously beautiful daughters. He had before seven sons and three daughters. It's a strange question, isn't it? Why weren't the children doubled like everything else? But what if I suggested that the reason that the children aren't doubled like everything else is that Job still has his original children? Now, that that seems like I'm just playing games with the text. I'm not. Here's what I mean. I have five children. And one of my prayers is that God will take me home before he takes any of my five children home. I pray he will take me home before them. I pray he will take my wife home before them. Some of you perhaps have lost a child. As a father, I can't imagine the pain. But I can say this. If God would choose to take one or all of my five children home before he takes me home, I will still have five children. I will still have five children. I will forever be the father of Josiah, Esther, Miriam, Ezra and Silas. They will still be my children. So allow me to ask as we close, does Job perhaps have a double blessing of children? Is the redemption in this passage possibly even greater than we think? Is it the hope here of resurrection blessing. I don't believe this is too far-fetched for Job. I don't think it's too far-fetched for the Bible. I think of, of David when the child that he had with Bathsheba dies and he is fasting and praying before the Lord that the child might live. But the child dies and then David stands up and he cleans himself. And people are wondering, why are you now doing this shouldn't you be mourning now and he says the child will not come to me but I will go to the child or I think of Job I don't think this is too far fetched for Job after all Job in this very book chapter 19 verse 25 26 and 27 says this for I know that my redeemer lives And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, after I've rotted, yet in my flesh 
I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. He says, I may rot and perish, but one day in my body, I will stand before my Redeemer. And I would just say this, is it only Job on that day? Is it not Job and seven sons and three famously beautiful daughters and seven more sons and three other daughters? Is it not Job and all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the victory over death? I don't think Job's lost his children because I think Job believes in the resurrection of the dead. And I think the blessing in this passage isn't supposed to be the fullest blessing because it's a shadow of a blessing that is to come. When 14 sons and six daughters will stand with Job before their Redeemer. As will all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is real restoration, it's real redemption, and it is real resurrection in this passage. That's the hope of the gospel. God is not replacing Job's children as if someone could replace a human life with another human life and that that would fix it. No, God isn't doing that here. He's doubling Job's blessing of children. After all, he isn't the God of the dead, but the God of the living, as Jesus tells us in the New Testament. Where we think death has won, God says death has not won. Death doesn't get the final word. I am a restorer. I am a redeemer. I am a resurrector. Let me close with God's words to us through the prophet Ezekiel. Beautiful, hopeful words from the Old Testament. Just listen. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. And I will bring you into the land. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. I have spoken and I will do it. There is nothing more certain than the promise of God. He has spoken and he will do it. Praise the Lord God for his restoration, his redemption and his resurrection through faith in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, you give us such beautiful promises and such beautiful hope. You allow us here to glimpse into the future and whatever will be in a sinful and fallen world won't be in the new heaven and the new earth. You are a God who resurrects his people. You are a God who blesses them more fully than they could ever imagine. You are sovereign, and your word is true. And we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. 
Amen.